Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. Uh, St. Patty's Day. St. Patty's Day will be when we're airing this uh, on, on Thursday. And I'm going to tell you something. You know, maybe growing up back east, I enjoyed St. Patty's Day. But in L.A., it's just not the same. I know Chicago has the... Uh, Green River, and in Philadelphia, they used to have a bus store that would Joe go from bar to bar, and you could stop and drink. But out here, I'm telling you, I watched it on the news. People are up at like 6 a.m. waiting in line to get their Guinness, and you know, I like Guinness, but I'm not getting it at 6 in the morning. I'm not drinking it. And then what they don't get is they start drinking and drinking and drinking, and by 9 a.m., they're wasted, and their day's shot. So if you're going to go out, just be, be responsible. Don't be that, that asshole who sits there and gets drunk and gets thrown out of the bar by 9 o'clock. Because if you're with your friends, they're screwed. They're going to leave too. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a um, a, a great a great drummer. I'm going to say it. A great drummer. It's Kenny Aronoff. How you doing, Kenny? Good, man. Just spent uh, 18 hours yesterday doing the final edit on my autobiography that's been a three-hour, almost a pain in the ass. You know, it's been, um, I had no idea when someone says, Hey, you, they wanted to write a book because I was just interviewing for Joe Satriani's book uh, and I had just done Chicken Foot Tour. So the, the writer said, hey, I've got to do your book because I was talking not just about music, but I was talking about, you know, print life principles and values and stuff. He went, dude, you've got to write the book. And I went, nah, nah, I don't want to write a book. And I was saying I don't want to write a book not knowing what's involved. I tell you, it makes any, of, any session I've ever done seem like nothing because you're in you're out and i'm an expert at that this was like you know a marathon and because of my i have i'm a workaholic you know i, I mean uh, i saw the beatles on tv when i was 11 and 50 years later i got to play with them the first two records were the meet the beatles and serpent safari and 50 years later i was recording with brian wilson and the premise is that dreams come true only if we're, you work your ass off, dreams don't come true if they don't pop out of the sky. And if they do, you can't handle them. Because, because the thing is, if a guy like me who spends spent 40 years working his ass off and still is, when that dream comes true to you, how are you going to compete with a guy who's got 40 years who's been like marine styling it? In other words, a dream, you, you can't hold on to a dream if you don't have you don't have that foundation. Anyway, the, the, the book is about that journey and through that journey because of a lot of experiences of me seeing how the business is fleeting that I and and some situations that put me into a fear situation like you know tours John's quits the tour quits touring for well he says he's going to quit touring for three years actually he did quit touring for three years we made records you know just got divorced you only have five I realized I only had five months worth of money saved in, in the bank because I was just on salary John it was John's band not to put him down, just the way it was. I was just happy to be on MTV, flying around in private jets and getting laid and, and playing in arenas, sold-out arenas. You know, we had no opening act. It was we John could, Cougar. Yeah, John Cougar Mellencamp. We could sell out two arenas, to two L.A. forums and with no opening act. And we made it. And then he quits, and I'm suddenly going like, I mean, I literally put, the, it was like, he, he, I got a bonus check at the end of the last show of the Jubilee Tour, and he says, don't spend it one place, I fucking quit. For three years. Well, I took him serious. I mean, he sure sounded serious when he said it. Um, although realistically, I know he would never have quit. Well, that doesn't make sense. But I was younger. So I, I put the bottle down and started calculating. I had five months worth of money saved. Because so I had child support, you know, house payments, car payments, the regular stuff. And 
I was proactive, and because I'm a workaholic, I came out here and started launched a, a massive uh, recording career. You know, uh, you know, I had drums in Indianapolis, I had drums in L.A., and I had drums in New York, and even out of the country. But un, unlike today, there was a lot of money back then. So I would literally, I was walking. I mean, just this is this is just a three-week period. I walked out of doing Blaze of Glory with Bon Jovi into two days of recording with Elton John, into four days of recording with Bob Seger, taking Red Eye to do four days with the Indigo Girls in Atlanta, fly back to L.A. to do more Bob Seger, and then Willie Nelson, and it never stopped like that. It wasn't like nowadays I'm recording in my studio with a lot of unsigned people. These were huge names, nonstop for like 35 years. Well, you know, you, you said when you were 11 you saw the Beatles on TV. And that's what got you into music. What captivated you about them to make you want to start playing drums? I mean, you're a kid, you know, drums are, and, and you know, what, what did you see that said, holy crap, this is what, I got to be doing this? Well, first of all, I didn't even see the guitars. All I saw was that drum set and Ringo. And um, uh, and then I'd focus on the guys up front. But both, mostly it was that drum set, the energy. Come, I was a hyper kid, super you know, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was a three-letterman jock. Me and my twin brother were like, you know, super athletes. And so my, I was drawn to the energy of the drums. And, um, I, I mean, the world would have probably been different if I hadn't been playing drums because, man, I had to do something with that energy. I mean, I I mean, I mean, still lift weights and work out and cardio. Uh, I'm wired hot. So the drums was natural gravitation, you know. And my days in high school were basically school, you know, uh, varsity sports, home, do homework, and then I'd have band practice from eight until midnight, seven days a week in the barn, and you know, in Massachusetts, and that was my life. And so you st- you decided you're gonna get in band, so you started bands at a young age. I was in my first band, eleven years old. When I, I when the Beatles came on, I said to my mom, um, I want to be in the Beatles. Call them up, you know, call somebody up, get me in the band. <laughs> and she didn't answer me, and I said, Listen, I want to grow my hair. I want chicks like going nuts for me. No answer. I said, Mom, I need a drum set. I'm going to rock. I want to do this. No answer. Finally, she's dancing. She's enjoying the show. Finally, she says, listen, go out and play with your kid, your brother. So five months later, I saw Hard Day's Night in the movie theater, and that was it, man. I started a band called the Alley Cats. We played Beatles, Beach Boys music, and um, that was the beginning. 11 years old, first band. All I could afford was a snare drum and a cymbal. I was gardening at you know, weeding someone's garden for 25 cents an hour. And I had my snare drum and cymbal. I stood up and played. And, and you know, on my birthday, I'd get a bass drum. On my, you know, Christmas, I'd get a floor tom, stuff like that, because we didn't have any money. But the weird the weird thing back then was there was no mentors. There was nobody I could go, I want to learn how to play rock. There was nobody teaching it. It was new. Um, there were no books. There were no teachers. There were no schools. I was self-taught. But it was great, man. We were doing it for the right reasons. We weren't even thinking about money. We were making music. We were being creative, which was indicative of the time. Post-World War II, people were coming out. The hippies came around. It was about, it was a time for becoming creative, coming out of this locked-up world we were in. And I think probably once we realized we really fought for freedom, which we did, because, I mean, we were lucky we weren't, like, you know, speaking German and kissing Hitler's boots. We were inches from that. People don't realize how close that was. But the fa- we were that was a time when people were really celebrating freedom, and hence came, and you know the rebirth birth of a civilization in the free world. Hence the music was reflected, all the the changes that were 
happening in society in the free world that is you know so you know hence you know england you know america any country that had was a democracy and was you know celebrated freedom and the music was just outstanding so i was playing music you know, jamming on all the, you know, Cream, Hendrix, Almond Brothers, uh, you know, uh, Sly Stone, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Jefferson Airplane, The Who. I mean, any every week it was another band. It was an incredible time. I mean, I, I give thanks in my book to my parents for, I'm grateful that I was born when I was born, at the time I was born. Being born now in the, in, 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 in the middle of the music business that is now, it's a joke, man. Let me tell you something. You know, the record labels and the accountants and the managers, they think they're the rock stars now. And I'll never forget when John Mellencamp said to me a long time ago, and I thought he was a jerk. I went, he said, don't be friends with your techs, man. We're the band. We're the rock stars. These fuckers work for you. And I was like, what an asshole. He was so mean. But now I get the overall theme of what he was saying. You think that a record label would dare tell john what to pay us do you think john would listen to them do you think a record label would dare tell john how to look on stage <laughs> or springsteen i saw john mellencamp the guy came in and listened to hurt so good which ended up being a number two single on a record on a record that got a grammy and back then when you were number one or number two in the top ten there was none of these stupid little charts on the sides that you know right. well we're gonna award <laughs> you you're number one but 60 people bought your record when you were number one back then, you couldn't get us off a radio station, and we were everywhere. We were on TV. We were on all the, the you know, American Bandstand, Solid Gold, Saturday Night Live. You you were number one. Meant you were really number one. There was no other. There was no other chart that would challenge you if you were on the you know top one two hundred albums or top one hundred. It's like a million charts just to make. It's like everyone gets a trophy. It's not. This was big time back then. You know when it. And and so anyway, the guy comes in the record label and listens to Hurt So Good. And there's lots of stories like this. And he goes, I don't get it. I don't get it, Matt. He says that he kind of thought we should be Neil Diamond. That was the the talk. We should be Neil Diamond. John walked him. He was right there in Fairfax at Cherokee Studios. John walked in the door, kicked him physically, kicked him in the ass, slammed the door behind him onto the sidewalk. Of course, we got dropped. But... <laughs> we eventually got signed and we had the number one record of the year that guy didn't know what the fuck he was talking about right he yeah. didn't know well it's so funny it's like anything you sit there and you think the executives and they don't know and, and the thing is music is is changed i mean you've seen it change over the years well the business has changed which but, affected the music and but now, now you played classical for a while too right and you tried to you train hardcore, yeah now well, how now how did you gravitate into that I mean, you were young. You were like 16 when you started playing classical? Uh, yeah, about 16. Yeah, what happened was there was nobody to study drum set with, and so I was self-taught. And then I, there was this kid in my little town of 3,000 people, um, and he was getting better. I said, man, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm taking lessons with this percussionist from the Boston Symphony Orchestra, which was three miles from my house. And I grew up in a very, very unique town. It was like 3,000 people. There were a lot of intellectuals. It was like painters potters actors uh norman rockwell the illustrator was there norman mailer was my next door neighbor who was one of the greatest write book writers ever historians and and you know uh it was just filled with very very liberal smart people i guess it was almost like a slice from new york city had moved up to the berkshires so <clears throat> the boston symphony orchestra would move up there in the summer and have their entire program in the summer there, and the teacher, uh, the principal percussionist, Arthur Press, 
that's who this guy was taking lessons with. So I started studying with him, and it was this was no coddling or hand-holding. This was like you showed up for your first lesson, and he was like, and I went to Bo- Newton, which is outside of Boston. He goes, what's your name? I said, Kenny. He said, what have you prepared for me? What have you prepared for me today? And I went, huh? And then he's, I said, I didn't prepare anything. And he looked at me already. It was a very, you know, scowling look. And he says, well, have you prepared a mallet piece? I said, I don't play mallets. Scowl even more. He says, would you play timpani? I said, no, I, I don't play timpani. And I felt like, man, I, I got to get out of here. He says, what do you play? I said, play drum set. He says, well, come on, show me how you play drum set. Put on like a spinning wheels by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. In about 30 seconds, yanked me off the uh, set and put me on a practice pad. And it was one of those situations where I was going to stay or, or, or leave, and I just I embraced it. And I started with him through high school, you know, all the way through high school in the summer. I took a lesson every week, and I got into balance, timpani. In our family, everyone went to college. So when it was time for me to pick what I wanted to major in, I decided music. But I was behind in classical, but there was no real rock and roll school to right. go to. They weren't the, they weren't the <laughs> schools that they have now. Uh, I mean, Berkeley existed, but it was more of a jazz school, and it wasn't didn't have the the rap and and the training. So I decided to go to the classical route. I wasn't good enough to get into the big three schools: Indiana University, Juilliard, or Eastman. I got into UMass. Uh, some of it was lacrosse. They had the number nine in lacrosse in the country, and I was huge uh, scoring attackman in in high school. But I, I eventually, I you know, there was no no future in that. <laughs> I figured. A, Go for something. Go for the NFL and make you know millions. But I um I spent a year there, and the the summer before I started going went to college, I started practicing eight hours a day and have a log of all of it. That was the beginning of massive self discipline and hard work, which is part of my my philosophy uh, as as it were. And I um I always played drums. I was playing you know practicing eight hours a day. I was playing jazz in a trio five nights a week. What what would you practice for eight hours? I mean, what would your what would your schedule be? You say three, I'm gonna do this, three this, hours, this. Three hours of mallets, an assignment with uh, Arthur Press, uh, two hours uh, on timpani, and then two hours on uh, legit snare drum, and then one hour on drum set. Okay. And uh, I did this, and I was terrified to go to college. And also, I realized I was going to be behind. So when I got there, I was behind. But I also was extremely, I didn't realize about myself how competitive I was. I realized this school, you know, and on Friday and Saturday nights when everyone's out partying, I was practicing. I just felt like I had to catch up. So I was practicing and I'd party afterwards. Um, and then uh, I decided I have to get out of this school, even though I could have stayed there for four years and been the big, the big fish in a small pond. I auditioned to Eastman, which was five hours up the road. And got in, they didn't have room for me because they only accepted so many students per semester so to make sure everybody who's paying to go to school gets to play. So, you know, that's the school that uh, a great jazz drummer went to, a um, great drummer, period, Steve Gadd. And uh, he was from that area. That's Rochester. So, uh, but there was this chick that was really hot, cellist, at least hot for classical. <laughs> no, wouldn't <laughs> get blown out in the rock world. But she, I heard her going, say, I'm going to Aspen this summer, which was run by Juilliard. So I auditioned, and um, you know they say prepare um, out of the four categories, which is mallets, timpani, legit snare drum, and multiple percussion. Prepare in three area, three out of the four areas. Well, I made a tape of all four because I thought I need all the help I can get. Didn't hear from them. So the last day of school, I had planned. I had an Almond Brothers type rock band back home. I was going to play with all summer. 
I had uh, lessons with uh, Arthur Press from the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and I was starting to, you know, now I'm starting to excel in timpani and mallets and all these areas in classical music reading. And um, and then um, and I had a girlfriend. The whole thing was set up, and I was driving away from school, and I, damn it, I forgot my mail. I went back, and there was the acceptance letter to Aspen. Now, what's, what's very relevant about that is when I went to Aspen, the teacher that taught there was George Gaber, heavy dude, at every sense of the word. Very intellectual, very deep, no bullshit, no coddling. He's not your friend. You either play it right or get out. That That's the type of guy he was. And I, for some reason, embraced that sort of uh, world, you know. And um, I was the worst percussionist there. All the kids were from Juilliard or Oberlin. They'd been playing classical music was their life since they were eight. It wasn't mine. I was still a rocker. Right. But trying to be a classical. I realized I want to be with this guy. I want to study with this guy. And he taught at Indiana University. I demanded an audition. And he kind of, like, pushed me back. Like, nah, come back in January. I went, no. I'm going to Indiana from here. He said, well, let me find out if there's, in order to get into Indiana, you have to, now that school was number one in the country at that point. The largest country is music school in the United States. If you don't just get into that school. If you, if you get in, you're a bad mofo. And if you, do, if you don't sustain that, they wash you out. This ain't about like Berkeley where you pay, you can come. Uh-uh. They had a standard. And if you didn't meet the standard, you didn't even get close to getting in. So I, I, he said, we have, you have to audition for four different departments at IU to get in. And he said, I'll have to check to see if those teachers from four different departments are teaching at Aspen that teach at IU. And they were. So I auditioned. It might have been like Woodwinds, uh, uh, Farkas, uh, French Horn, who was, had come from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which is famous for brass. Uh, Farrell, uh, what's his name? Something Farrell, who was a bassoonist from Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. And on and on. I audition, I get in, I go to IU, right from Aspen, get my... Oh, by the way, that cellist never did go. Okay. She never went. <laughs> That's all right. So then um, I'm now at IU. I spent four years at IU and worked my way from the bottom to the top. By the time I graduated, I'd won a concerto competition. I remember I played a really famous violin concerto that I saw Itzhak Perlman play as his, um, as his encore. It was a beautiful piece called The Introduction to Rondo Capricioso. And I looked at that, looked at him in my first year at IU and went, that's the piece I'm going to play in my senior recital. When, when you give a senior recital, that's your, your la when you're a senior in June, you have to give these very, very heavy recitals that you spend the year working on. And I said, that would be my marimba piece on my senior recital. My teacher said that that in itself was, you know, was really, that'd be your big baby. But of course I had to me being so competitive, I had four big babies on my recital. That at the end of that recital, my teacher said, "I want you to enter a a, a competition, and you know, a solo competition, where if you win, you play with a sixty-piece orchestra in a in a in a in a the musical arts center, which is the size of the New York Met, you know, in tuxedo, the whole thing." And I won, and um, I performed that piece with a. It's a blazing. Actually, I even have it on my computer. It's a blazing marimba piece. I went from never had played in marimba until I was 18, and at 22 or almost 23, I was I had won a concerto competition in a number one college in school, and it all came from his hard work. 
So you're doing that, and you're now you're in the classical. You're you're doing great. Now, when do you decide to go back to the rock and roll? Because oh, okay. you were a kid playing rock and roll. That's what the first. Well, got I you. never gave up the rock and roll. In the summers, I would party and rock and roll. But except for it took, I, sp- I spent four years trying to get into Tanglewood, which is run by the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and I did in the fourth attempt. And that's a lesson right there. When you get refused once, you don't stop. You go back and do it again. That fourth time, I got in. And I worked with Leonard Bernstein, Sergio Zauer, Michael Tilson Thomas, played with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. That's the best student orchestra in the country. Talk about pressure. You do not ever want to make a mistake. Have you ever made a mistake like did you during that time? And how do they react? Because as you said, oh, there's, dude, there's right. so many people who are like probably like, what the hell? You know, you're Oh dude, I was humiliated. At Aspen, I at my counting skills and my understanding of how to play an orchestra weren't weren't developed enough. And, and a lot of times they don't teach you this stuff. You have to figure it out. If you, if there was a uh, Tchaikovsky uh, con, uh, Symphony Orchestra, the strings are going crazy, and then they stop, and a cymbal crash, two cymbals, you know, together, are supposed to fill that void. Well, I was counting, and you know, I'm up to 300 measures, and I came in wrong. Well, here's the point: don't don't struggle with counting. Just m- Learn the score so that you know what's happening 16 measures before you come in. It's so logical, but nobody pointed it out to me. And I just was reading and counting and following the conductor, and I got lost. When I came in wrong, the conductor stopped and screamed at me. Who's playing cymbals? And, of course, you got the entire orchestra turning around, especially the violinist, laughing at you because it's like, you know, how stupid. They're playing all these notes, and you can't even hit a cymbal crash. You know, I was mortified, embarrassed. I mean, just, I was at that time in my life where it meant everything to be successful, and I was I was humiliated. He made me count in front of the entire orchestra, and when I didn't come in, he yelled at me. I said, he said, why didn't you come in? I said, you didn't tell me. He said, count. He just, it was, it was, I uh, never forgot it, and I swore I would never be in that place again. And I'd had some, I was, a, I, I'd put myself in a situation that was, Everything was above me, and I had a lot of catching up. But, hey, look at it. got me to IU. I graduate from college. I get accepted into this, the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra in Israel. Let me tell you, it's hard to get an orchestra gig. People keep them. They don't let go of them. There aren't that many orchestras. I got offered a job in Quito, Ecuador Symphony Orchestra, and I opted to not go out of the country. As soon as I got home, though, from four year, or five years of college, I started studying drum set with a Alan Dawson, a great jazz te- drummer and teacher who taught at the Berkeley Jazz School for 20 years, studied with him once a week, and Gary Chester, a big New York session drummer who wrote one of the greatest books ever, The New Breed, and I studied with him every other week. I was practicing eight hours a day. I was back at home in the, the living room with my parents, really bummed out, you know, that, you know, where's this all going? I decided my heart trumped my brain. My heart wanted to be in the Beatles still. I wanted to be in the Beatles. You know, that never left me. And I decided I'd rather, for right now, I'd rather be playing in a, in a bar making 75 bucks than be in an orchestra with a tuxedo, even though I love the music. It just wasn't my lifestyle. A bunch of guys convinced me to go back to Indiana. Here's the Indiana th- connection. And the only reason why I went was that they want the, their plan was to get a record deal. Original music, get a record deal. And I, I and tour and the whole th- the the dream, 
Let me say, I had already fulfilled my first goal in life, which is the American dream. You go to college, you study something like my dad did and then, or my mom did too. You study something and then you get a job in that field and you support yourself and have a family and support that family. That was the American dream. And then you put your kids through college and it keeps going on. And um, I fulfilled that. Went to college, got a degree in classical music, got two jobs in orchestras, but I decided no. So my new plan was to be in a rock band like I always wanted to be, the Beatles, and do it that way. Well, I went to Indiana, and I banged around for, I was one year at home, three years in Bloomington, and I realized this ain't happening. I was about to move to New York, and that's where I heard about Johnny Cougar had just fired his drummer. Long and short of it, I auditioned, got the gig, and now I was in the John Cougar band, but five weeks later, almost lost the gig. Why? What happened? Well, let me back up a little bit. On my audition, I show up with a, a fusion drum set. like That's like two bass drums, about nine toms, and a million cymbals, and John's <laughs> looking at me with that. The way I looked and dressed was not very, wasn't the look for John. My car's leaking oil. And uh, he, I went out, got out of the car, and my happy personality went to shake his hand. He just looked at me, shook me, and says, John Mellencamp turned around and walked into the house. He was not digging me for, for all those reasons. So, But I, I killed the audition. Two songs. John, uh, Mike, the guitar player, goes up while I'm packing. He comes down after 10 minutes, said, smiles, shakes my hand, says, welcome to hell. I'm like, wow, what do you mean by that? Well, I found out. But the thing is, is five weeks later, I, we were supposed to go to L.A. to make a record. Now, my language at that point was, you know, fusion, jazz, improv, m- lots of notes. John's style of music, which was a singer-songwriter type of songs that get on radio. And so my vocabulary was not what I became famous for. You know, less is more. So it was a huge transition, and five weeks isn't a lot, enough time to make that transition. I didn't even know what to practice. Right. Everything I, between the clock, and, you're, you, and you're used to practicing so much, yeah. like the eight hours, you're probably going, what the hell am I going to practice? Yeah, how do you play simple? So I actually started practicing left-handed. I recorded her so good left-handed, just so I could dumb myself down. I didn't know, I didn't understand it. Anyway, I get to L.A., and in two days, I'm off the record. I had the wrong drums, wrong heads. There was tension between me and John. The producer saw it. The producer wanted to get the record done. It was Steve Cropper. He had to go on tour with the Blues Brothers. I get called down at the Chateau Marmont on Sunset Hotel, and there's a meeting. And John says, look, you know, you haven't had enough experience making records. You know, they're going to go to the radio, and I'm boiling at this point. I'm thinking, I, I didn't understand. He was right. But I was thinking, I just played with Leonard Bernstein. I want a concerto comedy. What are you talking about? So what, man? I didn't know what, I didn't know, my skill set wasn't designed for, even though technically it didn't sound hard, it's difficult. Anything is difficult done right. And the person who puts in the the billions of hours is going to do it better than the guy who doesn't. So my hours were very low. And huge, uh, a huge defining point in my life was the way I responded. I had no idea why i said this i know why i said it but i didn't i didn't have it worked out it just came out of me as if like there were angels on my shoulders saying hey say this john says you go home and um 
you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I just screamed at him. I said, no, I'm not going home. I'm not going home. And it was just like absolute silence. Everyone was like, wow. Kenny just said, John, I'm not going home. And I said, and then I all of a sudden just rolled off my tongue. I went, look, am I still the drummer in your band? Am I the drummer? You're, I'm your drummer, right? And he's like perplexed, like thinking, what is he getting at? I says, well, if I'm going to go in the studio and watch these fuckers play my parts because I got two session guys. And you don't have to pay me. And I'll sleep on the, on, on the floor or the couch. And, you know, John's going to have to pay him. Perfect. Um, and I said, I'll benefit from watching these guys. And if I benefit, you benefit because I'm your drummer. And that's what happened. And John, who interviewed my book recently, said that was a moment where he respected me. I went home, practiced eight hours a day after being there for four weeks, humiliated, embarrassed, and started to get more and more in tune with what I needed to do. I took all the basic tracks from that record those guys did and studied and analyzed and played those things all day long, every day. My goal was to get on the next record. Oh, man, there was no way I was going to go out and not and be humiliated like that. So now I had to get stay in the band, get on the tour, and then get on that get on the next record. That's all I was thinking about. Next record, next record, next record. Went on tour with the Kinks, which was amazing. You know, the British invasion. Oh my God! And uh, eventually, long story short, we I do make that next record. It was the hardest record I've ever made in my life. We we spent. Nine weeks in criteria. It wasn't easy. Every day felt like a week. Uh, it, it, Jack and Diane. What, what made it so hard? Because we weren't developed enough as arrangers. Uh, we, we, our ideas. We, we, we rehearsed in what was we called the bunker for about five years that I was in the band. It basically was a dog kennel dug into the ground with two little windows that were like enough to put an air conditioner in. Nothing facing the sun. That's what we rehearsed in because that was on John's property it was a bunker it was like 20 feet long 10 feet wide maybe eight foot ceiling at the most it was brutal we'd play in our shorts no shirts sweat our brains off smelled musty Ugh, depressing but we were in there we would bang out songs and john was looking for ideas and john said listen nobody owns their their instrument we all own it if anybody's got an idea for for an instrument or a part, it's just, it's valid. And your idea, just because you came up with it for your instrument, doesn't mean it's the right one. That was pretty smart, actually. He, he was good. So he was looking for ideas, and a lot of our ideas, you know, didn't necessarily work in the studio. That's the worst thing when you're spending all that money. Now, I was like, you know, why is John so angry all the time? Well, I was just happy to be on TV making records. And being on tour, John had lost his deal. He'd made a record uh, with uh, Tony DeFries, the manager of Bowie. And when his record came out, he slid it across the table to John. John says, who's Johnny Cougar? That's you. He said, no, my name's John Mellencamp. He says, not anymore. It isn't. John was furious. And he, the record, I don't think even if the record came out, and John now had Johnny Cougar. So he lost his deal. He was back to climbing telephone poles. When he got his deal back, when he got another deal with with um, Rod Stewart's manager, Billy Gaff, let me tell you something. This guy, was he was fighting for with fear to keep his gig. And he knew that just because you got one song doesn't mean shit. And you could he never forgot that he lost his, his deal. And he knew that 
he had to keep this. You know, you lose a couple times, people look at you as like, it ain't happening. So he was very stressful in during that whole thing. And um, so there was tension and it was like working in an adverse situation. So you had to try to play great and do great under pressure. Now, Jack and Diane was on that record, which is the number one hit single, which launched my career because has this big drum break. That record was off the record. Nobody knew what to do with it. One day, Don Gaiman, the engineer for us and producer, walked in with a Lynn drum machine, Lynn one that the Bee Gees was using. I was disgusted that you'd use a drum machine to replace a drummer right. on a rock record back then. So I grabbed the thing and I programmed it. Programmed my beat in there. The idea was they had eight outputs and they could take each output of every sound, take an output, every sound would go on the tape and they could, you know, bring it up or down or they could control it. They thought that would be enough and it wasn't. Finally, I'm in there. Long short of it is they wanted a drum solo. I come up with this drum solo, just basically note for note, trying to think in terms of what would be good for John, what would work. It has to be, it's a ballad. I'm thinking, how do you do a drum solo on a ballad? It's more of a composition. Anyway, I came up with this thing. I won't bore you with the details. Uh, I came up with this thing. And the other thing is drums, we had to create a drum sound. Nobody knew how to get a big drum sound back then. Only a few people had done it. Zeppelin and uh, Genesis or Phil Collins with In the Air Tonight. There was no rules. We had we drums were usually in vocal boots, so we were in a big room, spent a day trying to position mics, balance them out, you know, and and so the whole thing was not easy. It was Mick Ronson who played with Bowie, who's the one that suggested keep the groove going after the drum break and have the people sing on top of it. So let it rock. So let it roll. So that's what I'd be playing. And so, chorus singing on top of it. And the record, you know, went to number one. Made the album go to number one. Won a Grammy. John won another Grammy singing. And, uh, you know, we were, we, were the, we were the new hot band in America. John, you know, so John never... Um, you know, I mean, as soon as that record song went to number one, this was my reaction. I happened to be at the same hotel that I got dumped. Chateau Marmont. Went to number one, and I went, oh, my God, that's it. Oh, my God. Can we do this again? Can I do this again? Oh, shit, we're not really number one. We're not that good. Oh, my God, how are we going to do this? Let me also say, when we were making that record, and I was done after nine weeks, I thought I'd come to gone to Vietnam, and I'd gotten out. And then I get a call from John two weeks later. says, Aronoff, Mellencamp. We only got four songs. Fired two guys in the band during that record, and now we only have four songs. Oh, that was hard. That was hard. Well, the record did do well and launched our careers, and then it was pedal to the metal for the next, you know, six years. What's it like? I mean, you're going now. You're playing in these huge venues. I mean, it's basically you're headlining. You're in, you're selling everywhere else for you. I mean, it's, you know, you, with your with the classical background in the orchestra and you played in bars and stuff like that, all of a sudden now, you know, the, the song's number one, the album's number one, so you guys are headlining. What's it like? Do you all of a sudden sit there and go, holy shit, there's, there's 40,000 people when you're not used to a crowd that big. Does it get into your head? It was really exciting. And our audiences, I mean, the chicks were on the guy's shoulders. They were throwing bras at us, throwing underwear at us. We had a hospitality room. It was like. It got pretty wild out there. I mean, you know, we were, I was, you know, 
play the gig, look for a chick, you know. Um, and, you know, I should say, you know, and my book title is Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll, the hardest-hitting drummer in showbiz. But um, the the sex was, was important and the partying was, but my career was always the most important thing over everything, over family, over everything. You know, it that's hence two divorces and, you know, you know, a couple other things as a result of it. You're just so driven that my career came, it was always number one. So, but to see those audiences was great, man. Everybody singing our songs, everybody, you know, going crazy. Crowd, I would try, I'd look at somebody all the way in the back, try to point to them. And if they thought I was looking, they'd go crazy. We had, th- they come see us in three, 360 degrees start trying to jump on stage behind us. <laughs> it, it was unbelievable. It was everything you dream of. It was the Beatles, man. And and you know what's crazy though also is that drum solo is the one drum solo that anyone who's over forty knows. Oh yeah. Like like there's certain things, you know, I always say like, you know, when when I tried to play guitar when I was young, you know, you always played a uh, Heartbreaker by Led Up and the ball yeah. ball. But that drum solo is yeah. something that if you say Jack of Dan Everyone does that. Yeah. It's like it's like Billy Jack from Steve uh, yeah. Steve Miller when you do the. I mean, take the money around. You do the yeah. clap, but the same thing. So that must be awesome for you. Yeah, I know. How many people that have? I mean, everyone who's over forty, unless they're just a dick, has done that at least once. I know it's pretty. It's pretty amazing. I'm not one to dwell on the past. I'm always thinking about what's next. I'm like a a fullback or running back in football. Score a touchdown. Just give me the ball. I want the ball again. I'm always thinking forward. It's great, and when I wrote this book, it was, <laughs> I guarantee you, nobody's going to duplicate what was in that book, because it can't be duplicated, because the money's not there. Away. It's off the charts of wh- how many sessions and, and how many genres. I mean, I was doing, you know, I'm recording with Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson. I was con- recording with real country artists, the old timers, but I was also then recording with Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath. And the Smashing Pumpkins. And, you know, um, uh, you know, then all the little chicky poos, like, you know, Avril Lavigne, Michelle Branch. But then I was doing the, the, the iconic guys, like, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, Elton John, Bob Seger, John Mellencamp, Melissa Etheridge. Uh, you know, um, then I was, you know, off with, like, B.B. King, Bonnie Raitt. I mean, I was just all over the map. How did you parlay in from being with Johnny Cougar, with John Mellencamp? How did you parlay into all of a sudden being this session legend? I mean, was it a was it because people knew that you had, you were very intelligent when it came to the music. You were very skilled in all different aspects, and also that you worked your ass off. I mean, how did it? How did that whole career start? Because I mean, you mentioned on the phone uh, when we talked to quickly yesterday. You played with Roy Bitten of a. Uh, Springsteen. I'm a huge Springsteen fan. And I was like, most people don't even know who Roy Bitten is. And I'm like, holy shit. Right to me, I'm like, holy shit. I told my girlfriend, I said, you play with Roy Bitten. She's like, who's that guy or whatever? But how did you how did you get into this, this well, session and this part of your career? When John quit, I had to do something to make a living. So I came out to L.A. and I knew I loved doing sessions. And I could read music real well. And uh, But I want to do rock sessions. And so I came out here and I'd say the I was doing sessions. I started doing it here and there. And... Um, I would, uh, uh, you know, I didn't move here. I based out of Indiana. They'd fly me, and I had a because I had a, one of the, the the most iconic drum sounds of the '80s. That snare drum. People were interested in in me. And the thing is, it transcended into Nashville. So I could drive to Nashville from Bloomington, Indiana, in four and a half hours, or fly to L.A. 
in four and a half hours. Right. You know, so I was I was able to pull this off. The biggest break was when Don was called me up, a producer, you know, who I work with, still work with. In 1989, called me up. Well, hey, Kenny, it's Don Woods, man. What's happening? He says, listen, you want to do an Iggy Pop record with me? I went, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. When? Count off. Let's go. So I want to meet you. I come in to go meet him. Funny thing is I was talking to him. I didn't know it was him. I thought he was a black guy. So I'm going like, so uh, when's Don coming? He goes, I am Don. (laughs) Great start, Kenny. So anyway, I did Iggy Pop with him. And from there, one night he had to go to the Grammys. Once again, I'm thinking drums, Iggy Pop, Grammys, whatever. But we watched him. He won three Grammy Awards. You know, Nick of Time from Bonnie Ray and Love Shack. He produced Love Shack for the B-52s. All of a sudden, Don's phone was ringing off the hook, and guess who he hired to play drums? Kenny. So I did Bob Dylan, Bob Seger. I did, uh, I mean, just on and on and on. And now we still work, and I do a lot of, produ- you know, like uh, shows with him. He'll do like, you know, a tribute to John Lennon. I'm there. He'll do a tribute to Greg Allman. I'm there. <coughs> We're going to do a PBS special. I'm going to be there. And... Um, and not to mention all the records he produced. And the word got around. Word got around. This Kenny's badass, you know. And then, um, and I was building a whole country thing in Nashville. And I almost moved there, but I decided not to. I thought L.A. was more my town, more my thing, more variety. And uh, so I moved out of here eventually. Now, you said earlier you went from... Bob Seger to Bon Jovi to that all-in-one span. How, first of all, how does something like that happen? And two, how do you sit there and just keep it sane because you're going here and you're playing something, you're going here, and how do you learn all these songs? Because the bottom line is when you're going to go play something, it's not like like if a guy's in a cover band, they go, okay, here's our set. You go in, you learn them. Now you're learning different things. How did you do that? I write music. Okay, so that's how you... I'm constantly writing. It's like... There's no way I could memorize, there's no way I could do the Kennedy Center honors unless you write like a mofo. Impossible. You won't stand a chance. And also you have to be able to play lots of styles. The first Kennedy Center honors, which by the way is the Super Bowl, it's the most difficult, most intense. You're not hired just because you play good. You're hired because you're a problem solver. You're hired because you're the MD's right hand. You're hired because you know how to get along with people. You don't know who's going to... Dave Grohl walks through the door. Aretha Franklin walks through that door. You know, Willie Nelson walks through that door. You have to be willing to handle it. They knew... They pick you because you're that person. Um, you know, yep, I'm a rock star, but I'm also that guy that knows my position, my place. I listen, I learn, I lead as a drummer does, but I'm not the boss. So no matter how big I am, most anybody I work with, I've done more records than they ever will. But that doesn't matter. They're the boss. I do like, you know, 50, 60 records in my studio, you know, unsigned artists all the time. I'll be doing two tomorrow, four songs, two artists tomorrow. They're the boss. I mean, I don't get walked over, and I obviously that they treat me really good. But the thing is, I'm very aware that they're the boss. They're the ones paying me. They're the ones hiring me. You know, I tell them the way I think we should do it, but if they want to change anything, it's like, no problem. They're the boss. So that's 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 one thing. And being able to write charts was huge. I'd be on the plane writing charts. I'd be just coming out of a set. Tonight I'm going to write four charts for two different artists, right? Um, I'm constantly writing charts. When I write charts, I mean every note. I'm the most anal chart writer you've ever seen. It's like looks like Chinese. 
But once I write it, one take I can do it. Not that I'm going to use one take, but I'm get. You, it just saw. I you know I, everything I need is on that piece of paper. So I could like I go and play with the Bodines a lot. I bring the whole file with me, and everything's there. The tempos, count offs, the form. I could just sight read it. I mean, by now I know it. Fogarty, I got the Fogarty book. I got the Pumpkins book. I got the the Joe Cocker book. When Joe Cocker was alive and the drummer couldn't make it, they'd call me up and I just bring that that I'd say send me the latest board tapes and I'd have the charts already in a file. So I'm multitasking all the time because I can read. I developed a skill that took a long time to get really good at it. I mean, look at this, Melissa Etheridge. When I went on tour there, I had nine hours to learn a three-hour show. I can't memorize that much while I'm doing two out, 12 hour sessions during the day. 12 hours a day doing sessions. At night, from like, you know, whatever it was, 10 until 3 in the morning, I was writing out what her drummer was doing on tour. And so when we went on tour, I was reading. It was enough to keep get it going until I memorized it. Now, when you've been on tour, what are some of the biggest crowds you've played in? And what, where have you noticed, when you go from different a band, different styles, have you noticed a difference in audience, or does everyone always appreciate the drums? No, it's all different. I mean, the biggest audience was probably the Obama inauguration, a million people in front of me, not to mention the millions on TV. That was a big one. Pumpkins, I think we did, oh, was it a million or 250,000? Of course, the, those big festivals with, even with Fogarty, it's 250,000. But a million, I guess, would be the biggest Obama inauguration. I played with 27 artists, basically everybody but U2 and, and um, Springsteen. So it would be Beyonce, Josh Groban, uh, Mellencamp to, you know, just everybody. And um, and the sometimes, I mean, I play in clubs with the Bodines, and I love it. You know, it's, I create, it's integrity, and it's um, having... Uh, loving what I do at the level of what I do, and if you're around good people, uh, you know, and you get paid decent enough, the whole package is is an, is a wonderful way to live. And yeah, sometimes the audiences, you know, when they're up close, are cool as cooler than the ones that are like, you know, these big places where you're so far from the stage you have no connect. You know, sometimes the smaller places are even more intimate. You know, like when I went on tour with Chicken for Dan, that's like one of the that's probably the greatest band I ever played with because everybody was A-plus player. There were no slouches in that band. Michael Anthony from Van Halen, Sammy Hagar from Sammy Hagar and Van Halen, and, you know, Joe Satriani, one of the greatest guitar players on the planet. We're playing. We're having fun. It's relaxed. But, man, some serious players on that stage. And we were playing in, you know, 500-seaters, 800,000-seaters. It was so cool. Now... How did you get into working with new artists and helping develop them, and how do they find you? Like, you know, you you, you own a studio, you have a studio in North Hollywood. Uncommon Studios, LA, www.uncommonstudiosla.com. Yeah, um, people reach out to me all the time, uh, to, and they send me, you know, like, uh, you know, files, and I'll put on, you know, drums. I'll do two or three takes for them. I make a chart the night before, so I can go in there and work hard and fast. I don't engineer. I have my. Uh, I have an engineer that does that, and that's how they find me. And all over the world, there's the guys. See, there'll be somebody from Burbank tomorrow. And there'll be somebody from Switzerland. Um, I just did somebody from Germany, and um, I think a couple of people just reached out to me from I don't know where they were, and they didn't. I didn't hear back from them probably because the, the fee, it was too expensive. Right. <laughs> but I'm, my fee is really reasonable, but 
it's it's reasonable compared to what it was, what the budgets were. But to people who have, they don't know. They don't know it used to cost $2,500 a day just to get a big room in a studio. They don't know that. They think, you know, so uh, sometimes I don't hear back with people. That's all right. Well, it must be amazing to you, though, when you sit there and you can work with other people from other countries, how it's changed. We're like, someone can send you a file. You know, yeah. years ago, you know, you can't send the file. You, you know, you're, you're screwed. I remember I used to stand up comedy. When you wanted to get to a club, you would have to get your cassette. You'd have right. to get your picture. You'd have to mail it off. Now, they can just send an email. They can send a, a picture and a link. I mean, so for you, that must be uh, just awesome because you can play with anyone anywhere and you can just be you can stay in your yeah your dwelling i like it i would like to do more and more at home so i could be home you know with my wife but uh it seems like you know let's see t- t- thursday i'm going to south by southwest because i'm part of this movie that's come out called hired gun i'm one of the main guys there come back on saturday sunday i'm flying to detroit to film something i'm doing come back on tuesday night wednesday i'm in the studio and wednesday night i fly to, to Tampa to see my mom, which her 90th birthday, fly back, and that week is full. I just finished this massive autobiography, which was, oh my God, I haven't slept in, in a week, it feels like. And then I've got, I'm booked all through, oh, what my God, I got some TV shows and things with Don Was. I've got sessions, I've got some live gigs with the Bodines. I think, oh, wait, I go somewhere. I can't even remember. May is like, Fogarty, a, a recording session in Russia for a week. Uh, uh, so you go to Russia with Fogarty to play? or No, no. So another band, very famous band that's been around since the 70s called The Flowers. And they want me to do two albums in, <laughs> might be two albums in two days or three days. <laughs> I'll be writing my ass off. <clears throat> yeah. So now how did the book come about? And, and, and has, it must be, uh, when you think about it, it must be, great to recollect all that stuff but it must also be like holy crap am i missing any am i missing anything well what i did how i did i was lucky i didn't know how i was gonna do it i don't really think about making a book first of all i had no idea about the book it was not easy to get a book deal go ahead and try to get one you say well i t- i toured with this band it's not a story i didn't know anything about this they 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 you have to have a story and it but this is 350 pages, man, and in some ways it's obnoxious. It's like, all right, all right, already, Kenny, all right. We know you can play the drums. We know you can record. We know you tour. But the people I was doing it with is pretty crazy. But you gotta have stories and you gotta have humor. The problem is some of the humor that the editor was putting in. I was like, God damn, it's corny. <laughs> he even did one stupid drum joke. Oh, like, what was it? Uh, it was, I think it was, um, uh, something to do with maturing. You You're know, probably like, what the hell is this uh, shit? I it's my know. book. People are going to think I wrote that crap. Dude, well, you know, uh, you wouldn't believe the stuff I left out. Oh my God. I was so wild at times, but it, that wasn't my MO. The book was about hard work basically. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty heavy. I mean, there's a part here. There's a funny little part I, I brought up. You know, I could read. It says, "Okay, this is this is near right last four or five pages to give you an idea what where I came from." You know, so my uncle Nat was a tough mofo. So it was my uncle Nat, a fearless, self-made man who built an empire from nothing, a Golden Gloves boxer, World War II Navy pilot, the guy who did one-handed push-ups while smoking a cigar and smiled at you. Asked me when I was 12 years old, "Hey kid, 
you know what's the most important thing in life? I was so intimidated and scared of this guy, and my eyes focused on his gold wristwatch, and I, and I stammered, uh, money? You know, I said that because he had money. He slammed me right in the shoulder, almost knocking me over, and said, no, stupid, time. Time is the most valuable thing in life. I didn't get it at all. I just walked, wanted to go back and play with my brother outside. I used to think time was about playing steady, time. You know, when you play drums, you know, later on. Or being somewhere on time, like getting to school, or having a certain amount of time to do something, eating lunch, or doing your homework. But now I know, life is about time. And the question is, how do you want to spend it? As soon as I started playing drums in a band when I was 11 years old, I thought, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And at age 63, I'm still saying, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. So you're writing now. There's little messages in that. So that is that oh, all. Yeah. Is that all through the book? I yeah. mean, is that is that something Lots. where you have the great stories and you know, you know, I'm sure you share them. But do you I, you, you want to get it out to people that you know? It's more than just stories. It's more about you know, as you said, perseverance and and working hard and just kicking ass. Oh, yeah, there's there's seven key things I I talk about through the book. You know, obviously self discipline. I talk about that hard work. You know. You know, and and <laughs> you're not going to make it if you're lazy. How is a kid going to compete with another kid who's working his ass off? He's not going to do it. He's going to get smoked. I, talk, I get pretty hardcore. I don't think that everyone should get a trophy just because you show up. What the hell is that? Well, I, I, I agree completely. Let me say something. If you, don't, if, you want, if you don't have incentive to win and compete, you, where is that going to get you? You're going to be lazy and non-productive. You know what? The real world is about competing. If you want a trophy, work harder. Sorry, dude. Work harder until you get it. And you know what? You might not even get it ever. The point is, the, the, you know, the, the, the thing that's bad is the message. And I talk about it. If, you, if you're coddling people, I don't believe in coddling. I don't believe in laziness. If you coddle too much and you de demote or de, de uh Make people so they don't have any incentive or drive. You're killing them. And here's the bad part of that. Who's going to take care of that kid when they can't take care of themselves? Who is going to take care of that kid when they're an adult and they can't take care of themselves? It's not somebody else's responsibility to take care of a kid if the kid wasn't raised right. Right. And that's this This is a big problem in this country. I, and, you know, I'm not going to point the finger, man, but my twin brother is a psychoanalyst. He sees this every day. And usually, you know... It's like the kid, somebody told me this story. Kids at Baylor College, it's a pretty heavy college. Kid gets a D, a girl gets a D. Raises her hand, tells the teacher, I got a D in my paper. Says, yes, you did. You earned a D. She says, I don't deserve a D. Says, well, you did D work. She gets on the cell phone, calls her mom, hands the phone to her, the teacher. If I was the teacher, I would have thrown the phone right into a wall and stepped on it. Says, I don't want to talk to your mom. You got a D. Do get better work. What's your mom got to do with this? Mom gets on the phone and it defends the kid. Bad. Yeah, when I when I was Bad. growing up, I, when I was growing up, I, I was advanced in math and I took geometry and I got a D. And my mom and dad made me go to summer school. Of course. And they, I go, wait a second, I didn't fail it. They go, no, but you got a D and a D sucks. Right. So you go. I'm like, yeah, but it's. They go, you go. And and you know what? I got I got an A in summer school because I said, well, I don't I don't I want to I don't want to do this shit again. It's pain in the ass. I had to ride my bike three and a half miles to school every in day summer. in the heat in New Jersey where it's humid. Yep. And it's true. And I sat there and I said, you know what? I'm not gonna fail. I'm not I'm not gonna get it. I hated geometry, but I learned, you know what? Even if I hate something, I got a good grade, else I'm screwed. And I don't want to deal like that shit. I don't want to deal with because driving riding your bike, your friends are laughing at you. Yeah. You're getting your bike, you got your book, they're 
playing ball in the yeah. street. You're like, screw this. Well, that's why you, that's what that taught you a lesson. Right. That one lesson there carries through your entire life. Well, all of a sudden, if you're protected by mommy and they and, and they, they, they protect you, then you're going to be looking for that scenario your entire life. Now, how is that person going to compete with somebody who's working their ass off? Exactly. We only have a few minutes left. See that time flies because you got good stories. Yeah. And now, now when's the book? I mean, you went the through the is, editing, yeah, the, and what no, she said was a pain no. in the ass. Now, now where does it go from now? Here. Uh, so I spent editing like I read 350 pages in a day, two days, or know, 36 hours, which is insane for me. Making notes on every, unlike every other page is a note. And this was the second reading of the entire book, not to mention millions of edits before. Anyway, the book is now handed in this afternoon, uh, and I'm praying. I'm sure there's something I'm not going to like about it. Now it goes into the publicist, and they have heavy-duty editors that go through every single sentence, every grammatical thing, and they just go through this like crazy. And then they send it back to me to look at again. And then I have to start getting pictures together, thank yous together, which is a lot of work, by the way. There's an etiquette on how to do it, and I'm, I'm having somebody sort of give me the blueprint of that. And then I've got a killer picture for the front, <coughs> killer picture for the back. Quotes are going, you know, all over the place that I got from people like, you know, Taylor Hawkins from Foo Fighters, Chad Smith from, you know, Chicken Foot and Peppers, you know, a lot of killer quotes. And, um... And then uh, a marketing. I'm already having a meeting. I'm going to have a meeting right now about a marketing campaign. That I'm not going to even wait for the the book uh, publishing company, Hal Leonard, to do all the marketing. I'm going to do it on my own, too. And there's a whole thing, strategy to bring it to the point where when it's released in the fall. It's called Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll, The Hardest Hitting Man in Showbiz. I wanted to call it The Hardest Working Man in Showbiz, but James Brown kind of owns right. that. You can't do that. <laughs> so anyway, that's it. I want to thank you for coming on, man. It was great. I'm glad we hooked up. I mean, yep. We had to switch the schedule around. It worked out perfectly because yeah. it's studio. Now, your website, www.kennyaronoff.com, and that keys over to my studio, which is www.uncommonstudiosla.com. And I have a Twitter, which is, follow me on Twitter, man. It's a post all the time. It's called Aronoff Official. Officials in capital letters. Aronoff official. Instagram is Kenny Aronoff. Facebook, well, the fan page, because the main page tapped out years ago. It's all Kenny Aronoff. And I have, yeah, there you go. Cool. That's pretty much it. It's it's great meeting you. You too, buddy. And uh, and people say, yo, follow him. Follow him. Also, follow me. I'm at Cooper Talk on Twitter. At Cooper Talk. I write a lot of stuff. I I write a lot of jokes. And uh, especially during the political times, I don't mean to start fights. I write jokes. Come on, let's go. You're voting for Trump. I know you are. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Come on. Uh, my, My girlfriend said if I vote for Trump, She'll break up with me, and I said, "Well, you better be in my. You better be in a. You know what? We better be in good uh, graces." Like her. Break up with. Her. Vote for Trump. <laughs> Are you voting for Trump? <laughs> I, I hate them all. We're not gonna. We're gonna talk. I about hate Trump. it all. Washington <laughs> sucks. That's what it's all about. Anyway, so yeah, so people follow him. Follow me at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over 485 <laughs> episodes up there. Email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. You can also follow me on Instagram at CooperTalk1 iTunes, Stitcher, all one word, Cooper Talk. And go to my other website, StopTheSalt.com. Remember when I had that heart problem a few years ago? Had to change my diet, so I went out. I wrote a a cookbook. It's 120 easy recipes. Easy to make for one person. 
There's no list. There's no picture, so you won't get intimidated. No list of big ingredients. It's easy stuff, and you got to start eating healthy. And you can get that at BarnesandNoble.com or Amazon.com, or get it at my website, StopTheSalt.com, because that way I can sign it for you, unless you don't want me to, and I make more money. And it's all about me making money. And as Kenny said, it's all about making the money when you, you know the money's changing these days. Everything's changed, so you got to do that. So follow me at Cooper Talk. Follow Kenny Aronoff. Go check him out at KennyAronoff.com. Uh, listen to me next week. I have three great guests coming again. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, take your vegetables, eat your vitamins. I will see you guys next week and have a safe St. Patty's Day.